You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Today's podcast is with Nedra Glover-Tawab, who is a licensed therapist and relationship expert who has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, Psychology Today, and Vice. Uh, She has a new book. It's called Set Boundaries, Find Peace, A Guide to Reclaiming Yourself. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the S.A.M.D. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Nedra Glover Tawab, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So this morning, uh, as people are trickling into the office, we are back in the office, um, I was letting them know I was going to be interviewing a podcast guest, and I took the cover of your your book, and I just held it up, and everyone said, are you leaving copies? Are you distributing them (laughs) among everyone? I mean, there's a a visceral (laughs) emotional reaction, and I'm wondering, is that something that you've experienced in talking about this? Yeah, I think the title is catchy enough and the color scheme and all of those things. And it makes boundaries seem exciting and not this sad and drab thing. So, no, I'm not shocked that people would be like, that is something I need to look at because it's not a black book that says boundaries. It's, <laughs> right, it's right, right. really colorful book that's like, set boundaries, find peace, right? Yeah, 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 of course. And although this is a podcast, my podcast, which is based on the idea of saying yes and, today we're going to be talking quite a bit about no. Uh, and you even write in the book, quote, the ability to say no to yourself is a gift. Tell us why that's true. Yeah, so to yourself, saying no to yourself is really about self-discipline. So often we feel like we have to yes ourselves with anything. It's like we're fighting the inner toddler, like, you can't tell me no. And it's you needing to say no to yourself. So actually you can tell yourself no, and it's very healthy. We should not do endless anything, right? It it needs to be some limitations on things. I'm always shocked at like bottomless fries and bottomless, you know, all this stuff. It's like, can we say no more than three, you know, (laughs) can we say like four, because sometimes we do need like those regulations to keep us 
and fight, then, you know, healthy. And so setting those self-regulations are so, so healthy and we should not be afraid of that. We should willingly say, okay, I need to say no to this thing. So I I get invited to talk about creativity a lot because I've worked in in the arts my entire life. And this is something that creativity shares with boundaries, which is creativity actually thrives in constraints. If you don't Mm -hmm. have constraints around it, people can't be creative. In fact, if they know what box they're playing in, they have an incredible array of things that they can uh, then apply to create their thing. And with boundaries, that that seems to be the same thing. Mm. Yeah, I found that when when writing my book, it was so very important for me to have boundaries about around how I write. You know, that Mm -hmm. is a creative process. So to set some sort of process or standards for I'm going to write on these days during these times and I will not allow myself to be on my phone and, you know, doing all of these other things that would really get in the way of that creative process. So even while writing the book, boundaries were so important. I bet. All right. So let's, let's define our terms here. Um, tell us what are boundaries? Mm. Boundaries are rules and expectations that we have for ourselves or for other people. It's our very own policy and procedure. It's our operating manual. It is our how to use guide. And people aren't really great at telling other people what they need and want. Mm-hmm. Which is shocking because we often know it. We know what we need and want, but we feel like it's so out of reach. It's so unachievable. So to communicate that to someone else, it seems impossible to just say to them, I'm not able to come, but I would I would love to send you a gift. It's like we know that, but instead we drag ourselves to do these things that are just not fulfilling, is not rewarding. And we end up really being mad at ourselves for doing a lot of the things that we agree to do. And this also has a lot to do with self-care, right? So if, if you're neglecting self-care, you know that that's like a classic sign that you've got some boundary issues. Absolutely. Because how do we not have time for ourselves when we are the people managing our time? Like, you go, go ahead. You're, the, you're the manager of you and you're mismanaging yourself when you don't have <laughs> time to, to drink enough water in the day or to have five minutes to read a book or you know, talk with a friend and those sorts of things. It's like you're overscheduling yourself. And then you note that there's three levels of boundaries. Can you talk about those? Yeah. So there are, you know, two types of unhealthy boundaries. Those are porous boundaries where um, we sort of allow anything to flow. We don't recognize our boundaries. We certainly don't speak them to other people. And we have these things going on with us that, you know, we're not clearly addressing. And then there are rigid boundaries when we have gone to the extreme of setting boundaries to the point that we're building walls and keeping people out. We're always saying no, we're never available to do anything. We don't want to ask anyone for help. We'll do everything ourselves, all of those extreme ways of existing. And then right in the middle, there are healthy boundaries where we say, know when we when we can't and we say yes when we can we allow people to help us and we help other people all based on what we need and what they need and our willingness to do it and that's the space where we're able to 
be a healthy version of ourselves and not overextending ourselves as we might do with porous boundaries and not um, isolating ourselves as we might do with rigid boundaries. I thought one of the most useful things throughout reading this book were the examples you give when someone attempts to sort of set a boundary or reset a boundary and the various ways in which people who don't like that boundary are going to come back at them. All right. So one of them was quote, since you accepted behaviors in the past that you now deem inappropriate, people will react by asking questions as a way to rationalize their behavior as unproblematic. That was Mm -hmm. fascinating to me and immediately set off. Like I've experienced that in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so often. And unfortunately people will try to get you to accept their pushback by making you seem irrational for having a boundary. Mm -hmm. So they will try to talk you right out of it. And that's why in the book I say, don't give lengthy explanations. Because sometimes when we're explaining ourselves, we are giving people the ammunition they need to talk us right out the boundary. They hear a little bit in there of, you know, well, I can't do it on Tuesday. And they're like, yes, but they can do it on Wednesday. <laughs> you know, like they're, <laughs> they're just trying to find some end when in actuality, we just don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. We just don't want to do it. And so telling them more, people can, can try to make you feel bad or they'll figure out some way for you to do the thing that you don't even want to do. We teach in our work of improvisation, almost all the beginning stuff that we do is about listening and about taking the focus sort of off of ourselves and, and, and finding sort of peace within ourselves to then, you know, do the, do this work. Um, And you note in the book that like defensive people aren't listening to you. They are, they are plotting their clever response. And so I think Mm -hmm. these tactics of short, clear, specific are the only things that you have in your arsenal that are going to prevent people from attempting to gaslight you. Mm Mm-hmm. For sure. And we know the people in our lives who we certainly can't explain ourselves to. We know the the gaslighters. We know the people who are highly defensive. We already know that. But each time that we engage with them, for some reason, we expect something different. And I would say that's a personal boundary that we, you know, perhaps we need to look at people as they are and, you know, communicate our boundaries accordingly. Maybe for those people who aren't gaslighters or defensive, you can give a little bit more of an explanation, but for the people who, you know, will push back or try to make it, you know, your fault, you have to be very clear and intentional about just saying no and not saying, no, I can't, you know, like all of these things, you have to be very intentional about saying, Hey, please stop asking me that. Because they will always, you know, be themselves. Um, I, I don't, when, when we book the podcast, we, we, there's no order. It's basically when people are sort of available or I'm, I'm available. But our last podcast guest last week was Paula Davis, who has a new book called Beating Burnout at Work. Um, and you note that, quote, burnout is overwhelming. And you say boundaries are the cure. How, how are boundaries mm-hmm. the cure to burnout? Yeah, so often with work, um, we might try to exercise our desire to please others. And by doing that, we overwork a lot. We take on more than we want to. My work, um, I'm based in Charlotte and there is, you know, quite a few banks here. And what I've noticed is when they downsize, they don't take away the tasks that are needed. They just have 
one person doing the job of three people. Why? Because they see that the person can do it or they think so. There's no complaint about, oh my gosh, I'm doing three jobs until they come to therapy and they tell me. And it's like, yeah, this used to be three roles. And now they have you doing this one thing. I wonder if, you know, tons of people were to step up and say, um, this is not working. I'm now doing multiple roles. Would there be some sort of shift in how they're able to do this? I wonder what would happen if we started to ask bosses, um, can I have more help on this project? Can you extend the deadline? Um, this is more work than I can do in one day with the other things that I have going on because some requests are just not reasonable and it's not just, you know, banks. I think it's, you know, people in my industry as a therapist, it's, you know, all sorts of things. Therapists certainly can have too many clients. I was reading a book about, gosh, I can't remember which therapist it is, but it's a pioneer and he saw a hundred clients a week. Oh, And I'm like, Whoa, that's too many. That is way too many. Like, why? Um, and it's the it, it. They talk about it in this book that's about burnout. But he thought that was his fuel to fuel all of this research. Now, I'm sure he was not doing one hour sessions. He must have been doing very short sessions. But to manage the energy of 100 people, to manage the energy of 50 people. No, you know, I, I think, yeah, it's it's a lot. And I think in my field in particular, there is this constant need for, you know, higher caseloads and these sort of things. And it really does lead to a lot of burnt out therapists and social workers. And we have to really figure out what works. I, I've heard of some jobs where your caseload is 150 clients. Um and that can be pretty extreme for a person to manage. And in all sorts of jobs, we have these expectations that are not possible for us to meet. And ultimately, when we can't meet them, it makes us look bad. And we're looking bad without saying anything about all of the stress we've been under to fulfill these unreasonable requests. Yeah, we do a lot of work in the caregiving community and the amount of burnout, the amount of the, those those porous or rigid boundaries sort of run amok because you're you know I mean you're literally talking life and death situations here, um, and 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 they don't get a lot of training in that aspect of of sort of mm -hmm. their agency right and and so that's mm -hmm. when, when we're teaching uh, folks in, in that world we're really sort of. We're, we're teaching that they're part of ensembles, that the burden isn't just on them, that there are other other uh, uh, factors and people who can sort of help. But it's it's not easy. It's a it's a very tough job to begin with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people who are in, you know, human services and, and these caring roles, um, they need the utmost amount of self-care because yeah. you're caring for other people. And you cannot do that well without filling yourself up first and, you know, having some boundaries around your availability and all of these sorts of things that we don't even think like, oh, my gosh, I don't have to take calls after 5 p.m. I cannot, you know, maybe it would be healthier for you to not work on weekends. Just having some sort of expectations is really important. One of the things we know about our work is that the biggest enemy um, to creativity uh, is is fear. 
mm. and is discomfort. Um, and these are things that are similar in, in terms of what are standing in the way of people actually, uh, you know, cementing their boundaries, that, that mm. they don't want to feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't want to feel uncomfortable. And I think the discomfort of setting boundaries is absolutely one of the biggest reasons that people won't do it because it's like, well, once I do it, I'll feel bad. It's like, well, that might be the road to you getting what you need or getting what you want. It doesn't mean because you feel bad, you're a bad person. It just means that you have a belief that doing this thing is not okay. And sometimes that's, that's not true. It's not true. Sometimes we are really, you know, doing things above what we're able to do. And also, I think people people overestimate how awkward or uncomfortable that I mean, it's always the anticipation up to the moment that is riddled Mm -hmm. with with, you know, worry. And then you do the thing and you all survive. Uh, And and Mm -hmm. that's that's. People learn that over and over in our work because we're forced them to do this, like get up there and just make stuff up. And then even if it goes horribly wrong, it's like you're back at it again. And, it, and, and that's almost a muscle that you have to work on over time to sort of then be like, OK, I'm going to be a little bit fearless now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think practice makes better. I think the yes. more we practice being uncomfortable, the better we get. I think about, you know. I don't remember being dropped off at preschool or kindergarten, but I can't imagine that I was excited to leave my parent and the comfort of the people that I knew. And so, you know, by day three, I'm sure I was like, you know, but you had to get through the uncomfortable phase of of being away. And I think that we've been practicing this for so long that we need to get used to it. Yep. You have a terrific James Baldwin quote that you use at the head of this chapter, which is, quote, children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. So this is about modeling, right? This is the, the mm-hmm. sort of where, where, where this all starts is, is mm-hmm. when we are born and our immediate teachers, which are our family. Yeah, yeah. And what are they teaching us? I, I've asked a lot of adults who have unhealthy self-care practices did you see your parents practicing self-care? And if so, what was it? You have a lot of women in particular who will say, no, my mother never took care of herself. She was always, you know, self-sacrificing and helping people, helping kids in the neighborhood and doing this. And now their parent has health issues. They have, you know, so you see the toll that overhelping has on people. It's not like, you know, you live this overhelper life and you're great and healthy afterwards. It's like, no, this takes a toll on your body and your mental health. Um, I love this, this line in the book, uh, quote, assumptions are not facts. They're hypotheses. Experiment with assuming uh, that people will fully understand what you say. That is, that is not easy. Um, uh, because it requires, there's a phrase I use, which is replace blame with curiosity, you know? So, so if you can enter into that sort of, with that mindset, you have an opportunity for all sorts of possibilities. Uh, but the, the opposite is mostly how we enter these, these conversations. Absolutely. And I think, um, it's so important for us to recognize that 
we don't always know how people will respond, even where we're assuming they will do this or they will say that. It's it's often not true. It's just something in our head. Like we're being creative writers with these scenarios and how they'll play out and what the person will say and what they'll do. And sometimes it's just not true. It's just a way for us to talk ourselves out of being assertive. Natra, do, do boundaries change or are they static? They change. We change. And so our boundaries don't always have to be the same. I think about, you know, now that we are exiting um, some pandemic restrictions, we'll have new boundaries. You know, there's been a lot of talk of do we tell people that they need to still wear a mask? Do we tell them they don't? How do we operate with people? So boundaries are constantly shifting and we have to figure out what that will look like for us. I literally just had this experience in the Walgreens across from Second City. Uh, I went in there just to grab some seltzer water and um, everyone was wearing a mask except for one older white guy. And I was like, and I'm like, all right, I'm trying not to make assumptions. I think you're supposed to wear your mask in here. Um, and it's just that there, there's such an odd time we're living in where there, there, there really are no sort of set guided mm-hmm. rules and so mm-hmm. you, you're sort of inventing them for yourselves and i i want to i'm fully vaccinated i want to err on the side of caution and respect and i don't think everyone mm-hmm. feels the same way no they don't um i'm in north carolina and the restrictions here have been lifted in terms of masks are now optional in most spaces you have some business owners who are still saying you have to wear a mask but some are not and so, you know, I went to Target today and, you know, it was kind of a half and half situation. So how do we, you know, police other people when we can't? And, you know, if you're a business owner, you can certainly have whatever restrictions you want. But without those boundaries in place, it's very hard to, you know, have everybody respect the rules. Um, in the uh, chapter around what boundary violations look like. I got very interested in this idea uh, that you talk about with a, a meshment. You say in a meshed relationships, individualization is not acceptable, mm-hmm. which is a terrible place to be. So t- talk to us about what that, what that means. What is, what is a meshment? So a meshment is where this relationship is built, built on us thinking and being the same. And if anyone tries to veer away from that, it becomes problematic. This happens a lot with um, dysfunctional families where, you know, things can be happening in the family. Let's say that there are, you know, multiple addicts and many people who are codependent and, you know, holding up these behaviors. When one person says, you know, I'm not going to enable this, that becomes a problem because they are no longer in line with the thinking of everyone else. And they are now outcasts. They can be the person. It's like, your problem is you won't think like us, even if the way of thinking is unhealthy and unhelpful. Um, You write, quote, passive aggressiveness is the number one way we communicate our feelings and needs. Wow, Mm -hmm. that's that's depressing. (laughs) But you think- Is it? Yeah. Yeah, don't you think it's true? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I, cause, cause we don't, I, I guess I think of, I think of people who are notoriously passive aggressive 
And then, but when you think about a normal human response, it is a passive aggressive response, mostly because mm-hmm. we, we're not used to sharing our, feeling comfortable sharing our truths. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's, that, that's based on me being a therapist and just watching people and thinking about all the people I know in my life. And I would say that most people are passive aggressive, even myself time to time, because it is really hard to communicate and be honest because people, you don't feel that. Why do you feel that way? And so it is really hard for us to open up and be honest and authentic with people because it is just the other day, I will not say the music artist because I got dragged for this, but there is a icon that many, many people love. And I was at a social gathering and I said, I don't like this person. And oh my gosh, I mean, everyone was so upset. And I said, am I being judged for my opinion? And mm-hmm. it, no, 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 we're not judging you, but you are judging me. Yeah. This, and I was just joking. This makes me really uncomfortable being honest. <laughs> it's like, you know, we, that's on a, you know, a social kind of funny thing, but in real life, we do feel uncomfortable being honest about things because of how people respond to that. So, so often we are used to suppressing what we feel and attempting to act as if we don't feel how we actually feel. When we're annoyed by someone, we're like, I'm not annoyed by you. How are you today? You know, mm-hmm. we don't want to show like, you know, what you just did was a bit off-putting. <laughs> you know? yeah. But lots of times with passive aggressive behaviors, it starts to spill into the relationship and how you treat people and what you think about them long term. And people can see it. I, I thought of a couple things with that. One is that humor can be a lovely way to disarm and tell the <laughs> truth at the same time, but <laughs> but takes practice and, and skill. And the other thing, because you talk about trauma bonding in, in, in here as well, but I also feel that people who've been through particular traumas, there's this thing called post-traumatic growth that sometimes that allows you to actually be, be a bit more of a truth teller because you've gone mm-hmm. through this thing and you, you no longer have the, the, uh, the armor uh, that it's like, you know, the worst things happen to me and I'm here. So I'm going to, you know, be, be comfortable with my truth and, and, and really hope that you are. And if you're not, okay, we'll move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, it is certainly a mature practice to be honest. I've always been excited about getting older because the only people I ever saw being really honest were like my grandparents, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, they're like, no, and yes, or, you know, whatever. They would be brutally, well, I would say brutally honest, but at the time it was just actually being assertive. Um. But but I haven't seen, pe- I didn't see people do that unless they were older. And so I always wanted to be like, I can't wait to be that age where I could just tell people I don't want to wear my glasses, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. I could just say what I want. I thought it was an age thing, but really it's a comfort thing. And maybe many of us don't become comfortable in that way until we get older. Well, this is something you discuss in the book, too, when you, you know, you get older or you become a parent and then you're negotiating with your parents. And, you know, we have a son who's a a young adult and and very much want him to live his life. But you're always sort of like 
trying to negotiate, you know, like where, where do I, is there a place for me to step in or intervene and then vice versa? What, what's going to mm-hmm. be his comfort level with, with us in that ever-changing relationship? Um, and it's mm-hmm. not easy. There's not, there's not a lot of, um, there's no training that comes with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think parenting children and parenting adult children are two very different things because your role as a parent have changed. And um, I could imagine that that's difficult to transition into. My kids are, you know, five and seven. And so I'm still very much in the thick of get get me a bowl of cereal, do these things. But there are certain things, you know, that I'm like, oh, wow, I don't have to brush your teeth anymore. You know, like, So we're slowly relinquishing that control. And I think over time we all do that. And it's just once they become adults, it's like this heavy set of things that you have to relinquish. It's like so many things that, you know, now it's about permission and support and not necessarily about telling them what to do and and helping shape who they are. It's like you've had 18 years to do that, you know, maybe a few more. But ultimately, they are, you know, this this sort of person. And how do you support them in this? Yeah, Nick graduated college last year. So this year was our finally like, okay, I think you're not going to be a dependent on taxes or that's going to happen next year. And so it's this slow transition. He's got his own place now with his girlfriend. And, you know, it's it's um, it's hard, too, because we're suddenly empty nesters, you know, so it's just like mm-hmm. I didn't expect this at all. Um, mm-hmm. But I think in, in many ways because you can't help but read your book and not like immediately look at the mirror of your, of yourself and, and what you do well and what you don't. And one of the things that I, uh, that I thought was really interesting uh, was the boundaries around holidays. Cause that, that has been fraught in my extended family forever. I mean, in, in certain mm. cases, whether it's a, an ex or a, you know, someone who has a, you know, a big family on their side and we have a big family on our side. So that, that, that is probably something you, you hear about all the time is the, the problem around holidays. Yeah, it's like our family feels entitled to holidays with us. <laughs> and it's 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 a lot of it has been, you know, because of ritual. Routinely we have spent holidays with them, but what happens when we want to celebrate with a friend? What happens when we get a partner and we want to go to their place? What happens when we want to travel somewhere alone for the holidays? Like there are so many different things that we may want to do. And so talking about those things early can really help. But, you know, we have to be able to allow people some flexibility. I was talking to a friend the other day about, you know, how when we were single, we spent all of our holidays together. Like it would be like, you know, hey, you can come over to my family's house. But, you know, then my friend got married and she was mm-hmm. going over to, you know, her her husband and, and his family. And that's OK, because things have changed. I think maybe like the first year I still ask, like, do you want to come maybe for a dessert? OK, no. All right. <laughs> You know, um, we miss her, but we support her developing her own life and, you know, new family um, holiday experiences. That makes sense. I think that, you know, I think about when I was in college and how I would spend those holidays with, you know, going to different friends, families. And, you know, it's just not something I do anymore because my family system is different. And so it's okay to have 
those sort of variations in what we do. And, you know, we do have to talk about those things early so our families will understand before Christmas Day that we won't be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for your yes and story. But before we do that, you dissect complaining in a very interesting way that I had not seen before. (laughs) You say, quote, complaining falls into one of three categories, venting, problem solving, or ruminating. So Mm -hmm. talk to us a bit about this, because I was like, oh, that is, I never thought about what complaining means or or what's going on there in terms of, in, in this case, boundary processing, essentially. Yeah, I think the, the the type of complaining we have the most issue with as friends and family members of complaining, we all complain, right? But yeah. as friends and family members listening to it is the ruminating, right? Yes. Because these people are complaining about the same thing over and over. With venting, it's like you leave, you know, taking your Walgreens story, you call a friend, you process it, it's done, right? Yeah. You've gotten it all out. Um, so that's fine. You, you vent it, you've processed, that's fine. But let's say you're talking about the Walgreens story every day for one month. Now you're ruminating. What can we do? Should we be writing Walg- I'm at Walgreens? Like, what, I mean, what do you do in that situation? Like, this isn't even, you know, like, what are we talking about here? I think that's when people get burnt out. <laughs> Yeah. On your, you know, your complaining, but all of us, to some extent, we want to vent, we want to process that's healthy. It makes sense. But once we step into that continuously thinking about the same thing, not looking for solutions or any strategies, that's when it becomes problematic to other people. All right. So we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, when people are making something out of nothing, they don't Mm -hmm. get anywhere by saying no and not very far by saying yes. We ask them to say yes and to affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. Do you have a yes and story for us? Oh, yeah. I think a yes and story for me would be um, motherhood and career. Mm. I think it's so easy to feel like I have to be um, less or more in one area. And what I really try to strive for is some harmony with both. There are some times where I will be on and full throttle at work. And there are some times I'll be down. And I think it's that same way in parenthood. So I think that, um, yeah, I decided on a yes and with that. Uh, there's a, a guest that we had on uh, who is talking about uh, it, it a whole book on motherhood and its boomers and millennials and examining what's different, what's changed or whatever, and recognizing that work-life balance is a terrible term. Uh, and the term that she got from an anthropologist, I believe it was, was work-life sway. Mm. And I love that because it's like, you're, mm. you're, you know, you're not in one or the other. You, you have to, and, and sometimes you are, you know, it's, it's always, it, it sort of calls for the changing context, which is mm-hmm. how that, that exists, I think. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I use harmony a lot because it's about finding your rhythm, figuring out what works, cutting back here, doing more here. It's, you know, it's this dance of what needs to happen and when. With right. balance, I do think of like, it makes me think of a yoga pose when I think of balance, like standing on one foot. And, and I don't think we can have balance. Like it's like 50-50. And I don't know if we could 50-50 work and 
friendship or work and you know like all of these things like you know how do we chunk this into these equal proportions when the situation calls for us to be 100% the book is called set boundaries find peace a guide to reclaiming yourself metric lover twab thank you for coming on the show you're welcome Getting the SAN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumbledare, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive.